You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. That's the voice of today's guest, Grammy-nominated artist Hollis Wong Ware. She shares what Seattle can do to help musicians carry forward the rich musical legacy and what musicians can do to build a better future for the greater Seattle community. I'm Jeff Shulman, and today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast continues the focus on music and the future of Seattle. In addition to Hollis Wong Ware, you will also hear from Chris Early, founding member of the band Band of Horses. He played bass on their debut studio album, which featured the single The Funeral, named one of the top 100 songs of its decade by Pitchfork Media. Early shares what he hopes Seattle will do to ensure future musicians can thrive in this city. This continues Season 4's look at the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene. In recent weeks, you heard from two Seattle musicians who have been inspired to use music to enrich lives. You heard from Levi Ware about his nonprofit, The Melodic Caring Project. What we want this project to be is like that spark that lights them on fire, recognizing, hey, we can make a difference with our music. And the Melodic Caring Project can be a platform for them to make that difference and reach out and inspire their community. You heard from Curtis Ramju, founder of First Aid Arts. And so as people move here, as the city grows and with the growing pains, I think that the arts are kind of a balm and a conduit, a connection point for making this place human and livable. And in last week's episode, you heard contrasting viewpoints about the role of Seattle's policymaking in building a music scene that has had a national impact. You heard from David Minert, co-owner of Onto Entertainment, which manages the platinum-selling band The Lumineers. So we, we pretend we're a music city, but our public policy is not pro-music. We've, we've gone from being anti-music in the 80s and early 90s to being kind of neutral on it. Um, everybody wants to claim they're pro-music and arts, but, they, but you, you see it by what they put into it. And we're not putting stuff into venues of that size like other cities are. And you heard from Stephen Severin, co-owner of famed music venue Numos. I mean, we have a very pro-music and nightlife mayor right now. We have for the last couple. And we're going to continue to push that way. And as long as there's, as long as you 22-year-old rock and roll and hip-hop stars are out there and making sure that everybody's minding their P's and Q's in our government, we'll be able to keep everything going strong and have a, the best music community in the country. As we transition to today's episode, the question is what can Seattle policymakers do to ensure music can thrive here in the city? My first guest is a Grammy-nominated artist who shares what Seattle can learn from her recent move to Los Angeles. She's co-written songs that have been heard by millions of people around the world. And in today's interview, she also speaks more broadly to the power of music to influence the future of our city. Now, join me as I sit down with Hollis Wong Ware. I'm here with Hollis Wong Ware. Uh, she is a singer-songwriter, an artist, an activist. She uh, was here in Seattle for many years and is now primarily based out of L.A. Hollis, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So I could have continued on and on with that introduction because you've got, uh, you know, were nominated for a Grammy. You had tens of millions of people see your song, your collaboration with Macklemore, the, the White Walls song, and you've got a long list of accolades for your activism. Where would you start? What are you most proud of, of the things that you've accomplished? Oh my goodness. Um, I don't know. I think for me, I am just really grateful. I think the reason why you could say that you could, I could go on and on is kind of partially out of the necessity of being a freelancing creative and 
necessarily having to do a lot of different things in order to make ends meet and make things uh, move forward. Um, but then also out of just kind of my curiosity to learn and to create and to collaborate. And so I think for me, I define myself kind of most as a collaborator. Um, moving to Seattle in college, I definitely wasn't moving, planning to be a singer songwriter. Um, I majored in history and I kind of thought I was going to go more into academia. Um, but it was just the dynamic culture of the way that I was introduced to Seattle within specifically the spoken word poetry community um, that really activated and excited my desire to be um, kind of a cultural creator, um, to be generative um, and to see the power in that. From there, um, just trying things out, saying yes to things I didn't necessarily know <laughs> how to do or what to do, um, that kind of led me down this path that now I've really followed the journey um, and the possibility of being um, a songwriter um, for a living. Um, and that is kind of like what's led me to this point. From college student to tens of millions of people seeing your music uh, and hearing your music, what did that feel like? It was definitely an, an anticipated journey. Um, you know, when I started collaborating with Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, it came out of me being within the Seattle hip hop scene. So when I was at the end of my freshman year, beginning of my sophomore year, um, I started a rap group with my friend um, Maddie, who had been on the Youth Speak Seattle Teen Poetry Slam team with me. And we had gone to New York and competed. And, um, you know, our team made finals and it was at the Apollo Theater in New York. And we read this poem that we had written the night before. And that just that felt I was like, oh, I've peaked like that's it. This is this is as high as it gets. Um, but we started making rap music together because we loved hip hop, but we necess didn't necessarily feel like we would have the courage or the chutzpah to like do it on our own per se. Um, and since we were teens rapping, women making music um, very much unapologetically political in our content. Um, we just ended up kind of meeting everybody in the scene pretty quickly, um, including my heroes, Blue Scholars, who I had been obsessed with from the moment I touched down in Seattle, um, and then also Macklemore. And so um, I actually uh, got introduced more formally to Macklemore, even though I had known him from just kind of being around. And we had we had opened for him a chop suey on one of those lineups where there was like 11 acts on the bill. Um, but I got introduced to him more formally because Zia Mohadra Jospi, who um, is a director who had directed a ton of Blue Scholars music videos, asked me to come on board as a producer. And I had never produced anything before, but I had just graduated from college and I was really intrigued by the idea of seeing how it all came together. Um, and since, you know, Macklemore and then that he had just kind of joined up formally with Ryan Lewis were um, such a kind of hometown hero story, I kind of just wanted to see the mechanisms behind how it worked. I kind of wanted to be alongside it. Um, so I said yes. Um, and we ended up crafting that music video called Wings together. It was Macklemore and Ryan Lewis's second music video or actually technically their first music video, Macklemore had made The Town before. Um, and so we created this music video over the process of like four to five months. Um, and the funny thing with that was that the song wasn't even fully written. So through the course of making the music video as a producer, I ended up being a co-writer on the song and I wrote the hook for the song with Macklemore. So that was my first experience being... A, what we now call like or what we call in the industry a co-writer um but that I helped write the song 
And like now that's what I'm trying to do for a living all the time. <laughs> but I did that like almost out of like I, with my producer hat on, like we need to finish the song in order to get the music video working. Um, but through that process, like again, that kind of organic collaborative relationship that I had with them, that was the way that I was really able to discover what my passion was and what really what my strength was. I was like, you know, I can do kind of casting from our community. I can lock down locations. Um, and you know, we continue to do that because I ended up producing the thrift shop video after that. And it was the same kind of thing, like reaching out to Valley Village and calling and being like, we're a student project <laughs> and I can do all that coordination. But at the end of the day, like what I'm most passionate about is, is writing music and creating music. Cause I've seen the power of music to move millions, um, and to touch millions and to move culture. And so when you were, you're writing your early songs. Were you sitting there compulsively refreshing YouTube or wherever your music was uploaded to see how many people were listening? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think for me, you know, if it maybe not a regret of mine, but I think like sometimes I wonder whether like it would have been more cogent of me to focus more on YouTube as a platform because that's what Macklemore and Rand Lewis did really, really well. They were able to create content and amass an audience on YouTube that ended up propelling them to have such a strong debut album when it came out um, because their audience was really coalesced um, and, and activated on YouTube as a channel and a platform. Um, I'm really analog. Like I always write all of my song lyrics out on paper. Um, it's hard for me to kind of like bridge digital and to really activate digital I think I'm just kind of like more old school <laughs> for better or for worse I come from a poetry background so I'm just kind of more of like a purist poet I guess which I don't think makes me d gives me any more kind of like integrity um, but you know for me I've always just kind of focused on what's in front of me um, I'm more excited by an audience of a thousand people like in front of me than I am about like 10,000 people seeing something that I uploaded, I guess. Like that's what I'm driven by is kind of that person to person like interaction. As you're making your transition from poetry to hip hop artist to singer songwriter, what were your early impressions of the Seattle community, the music community here? Totally. Um, it was really thrilling. I think for me, um, you know, I came up through Youth Speak Seattle, which was this really rich, multi-generational community of folks. So when I would go to writing circles at the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Center every Wednesday, it wasn't just, you know, young people from the ages of 16 to 19, which was kind of like the focus of Youth Speaks at the time, but it was also folks in their 20s and their 30s and their 50s coming together to write and create this community. And it gave me both mentors, but also kind of a peership amongst folks amongst generations. And it also gave me a confidence that like, I wouldn't always have to be like the little like the little kid or like the mentee that I could actually be in community authentically and that I had something to contribute amongst people of all ages. So um, I think the other most important thing is that because me and Maddie, as Canary sang, my original rap group, um, were in partnership together, you know, I think if it had just been me, like a young woman navigating like the Seattle music scene as a 19 year old, it would have been incredibly intimidating and I would have been really a lot more vulnerable. Um, but I think, but for, because of our partnership and our sisterhood, like we were able to navigate together. Um, and because of that, we were able to kind of like, have access and confidence into spaces we wouldn't otherwise have. Um, and because of poetry, it gave us the actual stage time to have the confidence that we were strong performers um, and getting our bars up in the ciphers and all that stuff. So um, I think when I when we finally entered into the Seattle music scene, we were just really 
um, you know, like like any scene, like, you know, there were politics to navigate and um, kind of people to, you know, navigate. <laughs> but um, but I think like Seattle was really this incredible, like, you know, remarkably supportive hip hop community where you would go to see a show, you know, up to three, four nights a week. And it would kind of be the same core of people that I wouldn't even call them industry people because I think like so often like like Seattle is defined as like having it, no music industry, <laughs> which in some senses allows us as creatives to be like really experimental and not try to kind of like fit a mold. Um, but I would just say like that's when it felt like a true community. Um, and it was really powerful and it was really exciting. And it gave me kind of a foothold to think like, I don't know if I looked at everybody and was like, wow, you're really able to like make a full living doing this music, but there is something so valuable here that is worth exploring um, and worth like aspiring to be a part of. Um, and that's really what drove me as an artist for sure. And I want to get to what we could learn from your move to LA and what your time in the Seattle music community, how that might've shaped you as an activist. But before that, I, I ask all of my guests now, You've been here. Uh, you, you've been here for over a decade before you left to L.A. And the city has changed in that time. But what would you say the soul of the music community of Seattle's music community? Something that's constant across your years here. So when I was like in college, there was an institution that you might have heard of called Hidmo. Um, Hidmo was a restaurant on Twentieth and Jackson, which was an Eritrean restaurant owned by two young Eritrean American women, and it was a restaurant and a bar, but more than that, it was a community gathering space and actually a performance venue. And, you know, we would all come there for food or we'd come there to get a drink when I was turned 21. Um, but more than anything, we came because we knew that was a place that we could find community and we could find people. And no matter what time you dropped in, you would be welcomed and embraced and um, cared for in so many ways. And I saw so many artists, you know, like if you were to ask any of the artists that were that are kind of doing things and have been doing things, almost everybody performed at Hidmo. And so I think the spirit of Hidmo, that idea of people, Hidmo means home in um, uh, the Eritrean language. And so the idea of finding a sense of home and a sense of place um, a gathering point that's not based on competition or based on who knows who or the dynamics of getting ahead as an artist. It's really about the strengthening. Um, I do think that that spirit continues to propel through um, the music community in Seattle. Um, you know, I think that because we're all out here and we're learning together, I think that sense of kind of collaboration and collectivization is really important. Um, and it's definitely something I don't see. And like maybe by virtue of the fact that, you know, when I came to LA later, um, you know, I didn't necessarily come from that like strong origin and that strong foundation. But I do think that there is like a foundation here um, that really champions artistry above all else like I think that in Seattle like even if you're like you can't be hot if you're whack here do you know what I mean like <laughs> um I think in other places you know like hype will get you so far but I think in Seattle like there has to be a true um excellence to what you're doing um and that gathers energy and people are excited to support you you've got this energy and community and yet you chose to move to LA 
to leave this this city <laughs> to abandon Seattle. <laughs> uh, talk to me about what kind of went into that decision. Where did you feel that you you couldn't keep your career trajectory that you wanted here in the city? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is like it's kind of one of those like it's not you, it's me things. Like I think. It would be different had I been born and raised in Seattle, um, but I wasn't. I was born in the Bay Area, and I came to Seattle when I was 18 years old. Um, and I think another part of it is that because, um, you know, I, I think this is a real thing. Like my, you know, my career as an artist, like, was absolutely, you know, catalyzed here. Like, I don't know if I had gone to college anywhere else, whether I'd be a working artist today. I truly believe that, like, Seattle is the reason, like, that I was activated in such a way just through the community that I was um, introduced to here and that I was nurtured within. Um, but I also feel that, like, you know, I was reaching a point, like, a critical point, um, you know, a few years ago where, you know, I had, I had, had the experience um, being kind of on on the on the Mackle ride, being on the trajectory of uh, Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, um, learning more about, um, you know, the back end mechanics of how the music industry operates and how artists can like either get taken advantage of or protect themselves. Um, just getting a little more fascinated by the by um, just the inner workings of how uh, the music industry worked in a way that I wouldn't have necessarily had access to had that album not gone as far as it did. Um, and then I just saw opportunity. You know, I think. I was writing with my band here, um, the Flavor Blue in Seattle, and I was, you know, I could write with people here, but when I went to LA, it was kind of this fantasy world of like, oh, there's thousands of people writing music every single day, and I can work with so many people. And again, I'm really driven by collaboration, so it was, you know, for me, it was it was really exciting. I was always on an adrenaline high whenever I visited LA, um, and I was reaching this critical point in in Seattle where I really felt to support myself. Um, I was probably going to have to get a job in, you know, like government, like working at the city, um, maybe in the Office of Arts and Culture um, or get a job at an arts nonprofit. But I realized that, you know, just to support myself um, because it just wasn't it wasn't quite enough for me to be making a living as a freelancer here if I didn't pivot into a different industry as well. But I also saw that if I were to have pivoted in that way, just to keep up with the rising cost of living here and everything, um, that I necessarily would be like subordinating the importance of my artistic growth in exchange for kind of a consistent paycheck doing things that I, you know, am ostensibly trained in that I have the skill set for, but that ultimately like that, what that aren't my passion I am and who's to say like maybe in 10 years you'll find me again and I'll be like I'm a city employee or I'm you know I'm the program director at a nonprofit, um which is totally fine and I'm open for that but I was like you know as a as an artist as a songwriter like this is my moment like I can't decide at the age of 37 to like you know leave it all behind and move to LA and try to be a songwriter so I wanted to be bold and I wanted to take the risk um and it was tragic in so many ways because I love Seattle so much like I love living here every time I'm here I feel this like whether it's nostalgia or whether it's you know whatever else like this this true ache of of longing um wishing that I could be here and see all the folks that I love here um, as the community continues to like evolve um, and be present. And then in, in, in some senses, I feel like, you know, have I abandoned the responsibility that I know that like that artists do have here to continue to fight to make the city affordable and accessible um, and resourced for those of us uh, creatives. Um, and at the by, by the same token, like my desire, my true desire, and this is not just like talk, like I really am driven by the idea of 
learning and amassing as much as I can in Los Angeles and kind of for as that being like kind of the global hub of the music industry um, and then finding ways in which to bring both that knowledge but also the real tangible material resources back to Seattle and think about how we can kind of make this place you know we have all the talent here we have all the creativity here um, but we don't have the infrastructure and so what would it look like to kind of siphon that knowledge and that infrastructure from Los Angeles and be able to kind of root that and grow that here. I don't have the capital yet <laughs> to be able to build that here, but that is like absolutely my intention is to think about how to create an exchange. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that. So what have you learned so far that the people of Seattle could embrace so that we don't lose artists like you to LA? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that a house housing affordability is a really big one. Um, and I think that the ability to like be in a place is requisite to be able to thrive in a place. And I think that we are at this critical moment where that's not being valued. Um, I also think that there's a way in which we can kind of become, as Seattle, become a place of kind of honing and nurturing and developing talent in a way that's kind of been lost other places. like. You know, the traditional notion of A&R, like artistic development, like artist and repertoire development and artist development, just because everything is so hyper accessible, um, it's just like completely kind of turned on its head. Like now major labels will be looking more for artists that already have audiences that kind of they can take that viral excitement um, and capitalize on it immediately. And so the idea of artist development has kind of fallen by the wayside. I think in Seattle, we actually have a place opportunity to bring that type of artist development back um, but what it needs to be informed by is not just like the artistic development but also like the the business acumen behind it as well um, and that also I think that there's real opportunity because we're so tech heavy here to find ways to partner with these organizations and these companies here to think about how can we create a platform that genuinely enables and empowers artists to own their own content and get it to the highest possible audience instead of being t necessarily taken advantage of in the way that it currently is. And I think that there's a lot of potential to be creative and to do new things here with because it's like all the resources are here, but it's all siloed and nobody's really talking to each other. And so it's like if we were to be able to kind of put our like tech startup hat on and think about how could we create a platform to like whether that's a literal platform or whether that's like, you know, a distribution company or I think that there's just like a lot of opportunity to be like really inventive um, and to create like new intellectual property here because all the resources are here. But I think that the conversations are still at the beginning stages. I think another thing that inhibits Seattle sometimes is that we have such a rich music history here and we don't necessarily like champion what we what's happening in the present as a continuum of that world class history that everybody's familiar with. So I think it's pushing folks to understand that like, Seattle isn't like the music capital of the past. It's not just things that popped off like in the 90s or in the 60s or whatever, um, but that there's like a really and I don't know whether that's like partnering with tourism, which feels weird, but like a way to understand that Seattle is a music destination 
I think like is something that is an opportunity that can be explored. How has your time in Seattle as a musician shaped your passion for kind of changing society through activism? Can you maybe pick one of the things you're fighting for, championing for, and, and what you learned or what was inspiring about Seattle that has made you able to, to do that? For me, my artistry actually came second to my desire to be part of a movement that facilitated social change. So when I started at Youth Speak Seattle, like more than us being like dope poets that were able to throw down and get tens and like compete was the idea that we were coming together for a purpose and we were coming together because we wanted to shift the paradigm of what existed. We didn't want to act in isolation. We didn't want to be a, like perpetuating um, oppressive behaviors um, that we wanted to challenge ourselves to start something new and to be really radical in our thought and our belief and our um, optimism that society can be a more just and equitable place. The poetry at that time was a mechanism towards that shared vision. And so that's what excited me more than anything. Like I was more, you know, more than me being like, I want to be, a, you know, like a professional performer. I'm more like, what can I do that's in service to a more bold, beautiful vision of what could be? Um, and so for me as a musician, and I've had to reconcile that a lot, you know, like I worked working with Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, I saw that potential. Um, I saw, you know, two people that really did believe that their art could help shift and like their audience, which is amazing, like their audience is largely white men. What an amazing audience to activate and to be able to speak to because that is what could push the needle forward, right? As we move more into pop music, like, or as I personally move more into pop music and kind of like trying to center my career within it, I see the fantastic potential for pop music to be able to challenge audiences, to be able to provoke audiences into thinking in a new way um, and to create worlds and to create, um, you know, um, empowerment for people who are otherwise marginalized and silenced in our society. Um I mean, you see it all around. You see the potential of, you know, pop stars, pop musicians, pop music um, to transform the populace. I really believe in that. And it really is at the core of what I do. Um, and I think for me, I always hope to be in kind of in my collaborative spirit, I always hope to be in service. So it's like, you know, whether that was like, I think like for me, the most meaningful thing that I've maybe have ever done in my entire life and certainly in the last couple of years was working on Nikita Oliver's campaign for mayor. I saw within her somebody who herself, an artist, had such a transformative capacity to challenge and provoke Seattle and to really reckon like reckoning with who this who we are as citizens of Seattle, what the city is, what the city could be, somebody who had a bolder vision than I. And the idea of being in service to her um, energy and to the potential and like the incredible effort that it was to gather the community together just felt I was like, this is why I make music to have this kind of collaborative effort, whether that's like on a campaign or whether that's in the studio. It's like that potential, like it's just so palpable. Um, and visceral, the idea of just like we can change and shape the future. Um, so that's what drives me. And I think for me, my activism moving to L.A. now, like there's I mean, in the same way that there's so many issues in Seattle, there's so many issues in L.A. Um, and I think what I try to do is like, what do I what can I do in the same way that I, as an artist, I try to identify, like, what can I do that nobody else can do? Like, I think of when I do, whether that's connecting with organizers in Seattle or organizers in L.A., I try to think, how can I plug in in a way that's that 
that is actually deeply useful, not in a way where I don't want to be standing on the front lines getting my picture taken because I'm not the person that's doing the day-to-day work as an activist. I'm, I would never say that. It's even hard for me to identify as an activist sometimes because I feel like, you know, I'm, I support activists. I'm like in, in, in so many ways, but like, you know, I'm not waking up every day, like in the same way that a lot of people are um, thinking about organizing and, um, and like committing my, my day-to-day life to that. But what I can say is that I'm an advocate what I can say is that I really support activists um, and like support the bolder vision. Like I want us to think as radically as possible. Like there should not be a youth jail in Seattle. Like it does not make any sense. So like how can we take the opportunity now and not be placated, um, not be told that we need to wait or that we need to uh, follow along a process that has ultimately never served the most marginalized in our community. Um, and I really do see my artistic path as giving me the flexibility and also the platform to be able to um, leverage my capacities and my skill sets towards like genuine social change. Any concluding thoughts? I don't know. I love Seattle so much. I think that the city is so remarkable and amazing. And it's just like it is really heartbreaking to see a city with so much wealth and so much resources have be like a such a battleground for for livability like it makes it's the deepest paradox to see the richest human in history be able to you know land his corporate spaceship in the downtown area of Seattle and for so many people to be displaced and for us to be so numb to folks living in the cold and for folks that need to necessarily move out of the city um and I want to do everything within my capacity to be an advocate for and a change maker for um, folks that are living on the edge or have fallen off the edge here. Um, And it's like shocking and ridiculous how far the edge has gone. I mean, like I don't, it would, again, like as I said earlier, like I couldn't be a full-time artist here in the way that I'd want to be and live the life that I want to live here in Seattle anymore. Like when I told my landlord like I was living on Capitol Hill and I told my landlord that I was moving and he was like, I was going to kick you out anyway. (laughs) So it's like, you know, I think there's pockets of possibility, but like, I do think that the creative community is being choked here. We're being suffocated here. And, um, you know, the, the really incredible activism work that's like spearheaded by Julie C, uh, who I hope that you talk to, if you haven't talked to her already, you should talk to her. Um, but the incredible activism work that's happening around, affordability and livability particularly for musicians here challenging you know um folks to really think about how how are we saying that we support creatives when really it's like we're really supporting the creative history and the legacy but we're not supporting creatives in the present who are writing our writing today's legacy um it's it's embarrassing and i really hope that um we find a way to realize that you know, for for people who are earning here to feel deeply accountable to those who are born here and from here and continue to create here um, or else or else or else. <laughs> but I'm here. I mean, I live in L.A., but I always have my pulse on what's happening here. And I'm always like here to amplify and champion. And my hope is that like I make a ton of money making music in L.A. and I can come back here and genuinely invest in a more equitable society here. Hollis, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Thank you. Still to come on today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast, Chris Early, founding member of Band of Horses. 
But first, get to know Hollis a little bit better through her song, Cause I Wanna, from her group, The Flavor Blue. Flavor Blue. Now, music from my next guest has also been heard by millions of people around the world. As founding member of Band of Horses, he shares what Seattle can learn from his experience as the city looks to produce the next wave of musical talent. Join me as I sit down with Chris Early. I am here at Jules May's Saloon in Georgetown with Chris Early, a musician who's played several decades here in the Seattle area. Chris, thanks for joining me today. Of course. Uh, why don't you start by telling me about playing here in Seattle? Yeah, I grew up on the east side. Started playing music when I was like about 14. Kind of got involved with the Redmond Firehouse Community Center. 
and uh, they had a pretty cool setup there. Um, you know, they had touring bands come through, but then they also had a, a thing called the band pool, which uh, allowed kids to set up their own show. Um, so that was a really cool way for, you know, to get involved early on and start playing music in front of people. Um, since then, uh, you know, I kind of progressed to playing with some bands that, you know, were playing in, in Seattle, 19 on, I guess I would say. Uh, since then, you know, I've been in a couple of successful bands and gone, gone on tour a bunch of times. Um, and yeah, I mean, that kind of takes us up to present. But Walk me through what it felt like the first time that you were paid to perform here in Seattle. There's so many shows you play where, you know, it's, it's like $100 that you get paid and that doesn't necessarily even cover the cost of, you know, your equipment or your rehearsal space. You know, like you kind of have to keep grinding and it, uh, it doesn't, you know, it's de it definitely always starts off as like a hobby, not a hobby, but um, just something you're passionate about doing and you do it for that, not to get paid necessarily. But yeah, I remember the first time like, you know, getting paid a significant amount where, you know, there was enough for us to actually put cash in our pocket and from the show and that, that, that felt good that, for sure. Where was um, that? The Crocodile, I believe. Were you headlining? Uh, we were. Um, that was with Band of Horses um, and that was kind of right as that band was taking off and um, yeah, it was kind of, kind of awesome to, you know, <laughs> see, some, you know, see some sort of pay, pay come in as, as opposed to, you know, the constant, you know, going out, but and so what do you remember most about their first time performing at the Crocodile? I'd played there a, a bunch of times previously, you know, and like a, a lot of it, you know, ends up being, you know, you're opening for a touring band coming through because you're a local act and, you know, you kind of, you, it's, it's more of the exposure, I guess. And you do, you do get paid, but, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, it's, it's more for reaching an audience, uh, that said, you know, there's always the local shows, and that's a, that's a different thing, too. And, you know, those pay probably a little bit better, but, you know, maybe aren't as well attended. You've been a part of several different bands. Walk me through just how that happens here in Seattle, how you find new people to collaborate with and to join. And I, I, I've been involved in the, you know, community pretty early on. So, it, like, once you're kind of involved in it, there's always just you just meet other people through other bands and then bands form that way you know like it's just kind of a you know at one point I was playing in three different bands you know with all like-minded people and there's definitely a younger community as well that you know I, th I think that all kind of revolves around that same principle of you know like-minded people getting together in different ways and, and making music so do you recall any of the places from your your teenage years or your early 20s of that facilitated those interactions or that helped you where you started to come together with other musicians? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, like, you know, going to shows, obviously, not not necessarily just even playing shows, but going to shows and hanging out with people. There was a, a place in Seattle called The Velvet Elvis, and that was a great place. It was it was all ages. It's literally all ages, so there would be, you know, older people and younger people, and that was, that was a great place. Um, it was kind of in Pioneer Square. And then, like I mentioned before, the Redmond Firehouse was also a pretty awesome place to meet people that kind of shared the same interest. <laughs> so uh, let me ask you this then. In your years in the music industry here in Seattle, what do you, 
what do you think Seattle's doing right or was doing right? What was the best thing that helped you do what you love? I mean, Seattle's always had a way for younger kids to get involved and form a community. And, you know, like I said, growing up, there was the firehouse, there was all ages venues. Um, There was a lot of all ages venues back then. And a lot of those have disappeared. And the idea of all ages venues isn't really a thing. But, you know, a, a lot of bars, like, I don't know the exact politics around it, but, like, you know, bars can now do multi staged things for kids and over 21 but there there also is the Vera project which has been in existence for quite some time now and that you know that's definitely a great thing to have in the city and to continue to have it's an all ages venue that also teaches kids how to do live music and it, there's like a lot of uh, programs that they do um, whether it's like doing show flyers or like creating show flyers uh, stuff like that and that's definitely a cool place what would you like to see happen going forward so that musicians can continue to to thrive here in seattle well i mean you know obviously a big topic with the recent election was you know affordable housing and you know that that is obviously a necessity to keep arts thriving you know without that you know people just start moving anything else that you'd like to see to make sure that an artist has a chance a, a younger version of yourself can thrive in the city today? I guess from my personal experience with it, just maintaining the the youth involvement in it is probably the most important thing and just making sure that that continues to thrive because that's that's how I got involved and, you know, that, that's how that's how people get involved, you know, at, a, at an early age and if, if, that, if that gets lost, then there's no future for it. So, yeah. Any thoughts on the future of Seattle music? Yeah, I, I think it'll continue to thrive as long as we're mindful about making that option available. Chris, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Of course, thank you. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. In the next episode, we conclude Season 4's examination of the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene. But have no fear. I am pleased to announce that Seattle Growth Podcast will return for a fifth season. Seattle Growth Podcast will bring a constructive conversation to an issue on the minds of nearly all Seattle residents and businesses. That topic? Homelessness. In the upcoming season of Seattle Growth Podcast, you'll hear directly from those experiencing homelessness, and you'll also hear from government officials such as King County Executive Dow Constantine, and of course, a variety of perspectives throughout the city. Subscribe to the podcast in iTunes so you don't miss a single episode. And if you want your voice heard in that next season, reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman. I'd love to hear your perspective. I hope you'll join me for the season finale coming soon and stick around for yet another season of Seattle Growth Podcast. At this time, I want to thank Ed Cromer and Mike Bosey for all their hard work on the Foster School of Business blog. I want to thank Victor Balta, Peter Kelly, and Rebecca Gorley, who've helped spread the word about Seattle Growth Podcast. And I want to thank John Kaib, who made it all possible with his audio work in season one. Of course, I have to thank all the wonderful guests who've been extraordinarily generous with their time and insight. And I want to thank you. I thank you for listening and for joining me on this journey in the fourth season of Seattle Growth Podcast.